God, we thank you for a wonderful day we have today, Lord. We thank you for our brother, Robbie, Lord. And we um, pray that you give him um, the wisdom, Lord. Speak to us from your word, Lord. Pray that you open up our hearts and ears, Lord, and listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Father, I just want to pray for Timmy, too, and Rachel with their three little children. Lord, bless this unit. Uh, you brought them together. And you brought them together to be together until death do them part. And so we pray that you'll give them wisdom and guidance as they seek to bring up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord in this crooked and perverse generation that we live in. So bless them today, we pray, in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Well, I want to thank those girls for singing tremendous, you know. What a gift they have. <clears throat> I just want to read one other scripture, if you wouldn't, won't mind. Those of you who have Bibles, could you turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judah, Judea, beyond the Jordan. And a great multitude followed him, and he healed them there. And then look at this verse. The Pharisees also, they're always there. You know, they're always in the, in the woodpile, if you like. The Pharisees also came to test him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so we'll just leave it at that for the moment. Well, we're looking at this morning, um, my subject is a perfect paradise. <laughs> and we live in anything but perfection today, as you know. I've just been reading a book about um, the state of marriage in America, and it turns your hair upside down or inside out, I'm not too sure, makes you go bald, just reading what the liberals are saying today about marriage in America. Many of the feminists want marriage abandoned in, the, in America today, and they're striving for that cause. In other words, you don't have a marriage ceremony, you don't get married, you just live together have children together and whatever. If it doesn't please you, you walk away from it. What a disaster that's going to cause in the future. But there are many, many who are advocating that kind of lifestyle. They don't want to be tied. They want to call it free and easy. But it's certainly not going to be free and easy on the children that are left behind. It will bring them into bondage and chaos. A group of Christian leaders were asked, if you could have been present to witness any event in Bible history, which event would you choose? That's interesting, isn't it? Well, here are some of the answers. This pastor asked this question to these group of business uh, Christian leaders. Some of them said, we would like to be present at the crucifixion of Christ. Others said the resurrection of Christ. A few responded, the great flood. One said, I'd like to be uh, present at the crossing of the Red Sea and see the mighty hand of God. Another said, I'd like to have seen 
the slaying of David, uh, rather the, uh, David slaying the Goliath, the giant. Then the pastor said, well, what, what's your thoughts? They said to the pastor, he said, I would like to have been present when God finished his creation and said it was good. It was good. Well, five times in Genesis 1 we read those words, God saw and it was good. And I won't repeat it too much because we have been through Genesis chapter 1, had a good lashing on it. We're just going to have an overview this morning. But you come to the last verse, after five times is one more time. God's got to say it six times. God saw that everything he had made indeed was very good, very good. And uh, we don't get the force of that, I don't think, in English. I like my Spanish Bible. It says, He aquí que era todo buena en gran manera when God finished creation. And that really puts a spark in my heart. I don't know about yours. If I could translate it, I would. But that means something like that. God saw and it was in great and large measure when God finished creation. And uh, when God says it was very good, creation must have been an awesome sight to behold, a perfect paradise. And some of us would have liked to have been there, I'm sure. Well, some scientists tell us now that claim that if we could travel out into space fast enough and far enough, we could catch up with the light beams from the past and watch history unfold before our very eyes. Wouldn't that be great? Well, maybe the Lord will allow us to do that when we get to heaven, to see all the history of the Bible. And uh, I don't know, but that would be great, wouldn't it? See the history of Genesis 1 and 2. Well, the creation of the first man we're looking at this morning. In Genesis 2-4, we have the history or the generation statements that mark the progress of the book of Genesis. We read there in Genesis chapter 2, and I'll just share it with you as those lovely children shared it with us. It says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Well, that little phrase there, history, you read it uh, ten times more in the scriptures. For instance, you read it in there, then you read it in chapter 5, verse 1, the generation of Adam. Then in chapter 6, 9, the generation of Noah. And then in 10, 1, the generation of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then you read in chapter 11, verse 10, the generation of Shem, the father of the Semenites. Then chapter 11, 27, the generation of Terah, the father of Abraham. And then you read in 25, the generation of Ishmael. Then in 25, 19, the generation of Isaac. Then 36, 1, the generation of Esau. Then 36, 9, the generation of Esau and Edom. And then 37, 2, the generation of Jacob, 11 times. And Dr. Campbell Morgan rightly says, he said, the cycle in Genesis is one of generation, degeneration, and regeneration. And that's so true as you go through the book of Genesis. And if you look at each of those 11 uh, uh, verses, it's the beginning of something different. And uh, Moses told, uh, told how God brought forth vegetation in, in the chapter 1 and provided a mist in chapter 2 for the water to cover the plants. And, you know, you won't find, and I think this may have been dealt with, I haven't been to all the, all the, uh, the, the messages given in Genesis, but you won't find rain in Genesis until you get to the great flood. And God sent a mist uh, to water the plants. And Adam was the worker. 
God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and he was the worker. And it's interesting that God needed someone here to cultivate the earth and help it produce uh, food needed. God did his work, but he still needed workers. God's doing his work today, but he still needs workers. And uh, man and God working together. God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it, to take care of it. And the Lord does that, doesn't he? Remember uh, when the Lord went to the tomb of Lazarus? Lazarus was dead. The Lord cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And he that had been dead for four days came roaring, springing out of the tomb, bound and in, in grave clothes, and the Lord, what did he do? He said, now just a minute, I'll let, loose him and let him go. No, the Lord said to the disciples, now you loose him and let him go. I brought him out. I brought him back to life. Now you do your work. You see, the scripture teaches we are fellow laborers together with God in 1 Corinthians 3.9. We're workers together. And work isn't a curse, it's an opportunity, isn't it? To use our abilities and opportunities in cooperating with God and being faithful students in his wonderful creation. Of course, after man sinned, work became a toil, didn't it? It became hard yakka. And uh, it is hard work sometimes. And I remember when I was at school, at college, I'd work, milk cows in the morning, go to college during the day, then come home at night, hop on a tractor and disc till about nine o'clock, uh, breaking in new land, about nine, ten at night. Then next morning up milked the cows and off to college again and back and did that for a number of weeks, that kind of lifestyle. There was no let up in work. Um, we worked and God wants us to work. Uh, but that wasn't uh, God's original intention. We all have different abilities. We all have different opportunities and we must discover what God really wants us to do in life. And uh, Adam was the tenant here. God planted the garden and Adam was the worker. And that garden was planted east of Eden. East, uh, uh, sorry, eastward, east of Palestine, eastward in Eden. Um, and anything you read in the Bible is always in relation here to Palestine. What does Eden mean? Well, it means the light, the light. Or another uh, phrase, it means a place of much water and suggests that this garden was a paradise uh, from the very hand of the Creator, Almighty God. Bible history begins with a beautiful garden uh, in which man sinned and ends in a glorious garden in which there is no sin in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, what brought about this change from a beautiful garden that was spoilt to another beautiful garden with no sin? Well, the scripture tells us a third garden and that was the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus surrendered, remember, to his Father's will. He prayed, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as you will. Right? And having said that, Scripture says in John 19, 70, he bearing his cross went forth to Calvary as a great victor carrying his cross to Calvary. That's what brought about the difference. Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price for our sin at Calvary. In Genesis 2.10, we have a river, some rivers here. We read a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and there it parted and became four river heads. Wow. Can you imagine that? The water flow in the, in the, in the, in the river at Eden must have been enormous as it passed through the garden, then flowed out into four rivers. Must have been a colossal river to do that. Uh, you have the first one, Pishon, 
It, um, we have very little information about it. It means a gusher. So it must have been a gushing kind of river that flowed out from the one of Eden and encircling the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Well, I wish we knew where that river ended or where it was. We'd all be there today, you know, panning for gold, wouldn't we? But um, it's not there today. And, um, and it says, and the gold of that land is good. Bedlam, oxen, stone are there. And it's amazing how you come to Ezekiel chapter 28, 28 verse 11. There, a reference to Satan. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, including gold. Yes, Satan was there, and he was covered in this kind of stuff. Hmm? Then you have the uh, river Gihon encircling the land of Ethiopia, and then Tigris and the Euphrates, although are familiar to us, we still don't have enough data or information uh, today to uh, determine the exact location of these rivers or Eden. Um, and it's evident uh, that the geography described in the verses here don't exist today. Uh, as it was, as existed there before the great flood. Because we read in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 6, the world that was then existed perished, being flooded with water. Hmm? So the Garden of Eden was also destroyed in the flood. And it's so possible uh, we don't know today where the actual location is. And I'm glad we don't because everybody would be there looking for gold, wouldn't they? Hmm? We'd be flying there to look for gold. <clears throat> so uh, the geography described in these verses doesn't exist. The topography and geography changed completely when the world perished with the great flood. In Genesis 2.15, then the Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Wow, isn't that amazing? Every tree's yours, bro. Go and help yourself. You'll never starve. You'll never be hungry. All the trees are yours. But, he says, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely what? Die. Well, in this beautiful garden, God provides both bounty and beauty. And it's all for Adam and Eve. Food to eat in God's majestic handiwork to enjoy. It's all yours. Yet sin, that's before sin, of course, entered the world and sport marred their happiness and their joy. And so in the beginning, there was a perfect paradise, absolutely perfect. What a place to be in. All that fruit, it's yours. You don't have to go to the supermarket to buy it. You don't have to grow it. It's just there. I put it there for you. I just want you to partake of it. I want you to enjoy it. Um, and then we notice here the first covenant. A covenant is a binding arrangement between two or more parties that govern their relationship. And the word command, as we read there, introduces here uh, because it, it, it's God who makes the agreement. It's on God's terms. It's not on Adam's. And uh, God had given, given them great honor and privilege putting them in charge of the garden, in charge of all the earth, 128. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You're in charge of it all. 
That's more than any superpower. Wow, what a privilege. Wow, 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 what a responsibility. Would you like that kind of responsibility? <laughs> of course, with privilege always comes responsibility. And here the same divine word that brought the universe into being also expresses God's love and uh, will to Adam and Eve and their descendants. And then Psalm 33 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. It's sure. And, but they wanted to change God's word, God's counsel. You see, obedience to his word would keep them in the sphere of God's fellowship and love and approval and blessing. Or, and uh, so God placed two special trees right in the midst, in the middle of the garden. Wow. A tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we'll deal more with that next week. Um, eating the tree of life would grant immortality and eternal blessing forever and ever. Eating of the second tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, would also bring them wisdom, but would bring them death. For on the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Not might die or could die or maybe die or possibly die. You shall surely die the day, very day you eat of it. Well, hmm. And of course, since they'd never experienced evil, Adam and Eve were like little innocent children. When they disobeyed God, they became like him in being able to discern between good and evil. But they also became unlike God in that they lost their sinful, sinlessness and eventually died. And the question you might ask this morning, hey, why did God have to test Adam and Eve in the first place? Well, there may be many answers to that question, and you probably got a few, but one thing is sure, God wanted humans to love and obey him, and freely and willingly, not because they were programmed like robots who had to obey. God gave them a free choice, a free choice. And that's not preached today sometimes. Some, some preachers and teachers teach us we have no choice. We're either elected for heaven or condemned for hell. But here God gives them a choice. In one sense, God took a risk, didn't he? When he uh, made Adam and Eve uh, in his own image and gave them the privilege of choice in the garden. You can eat all the fruit of the, of the garden. All those trees are yours. You can freely eat it, God says. But there's one you can't touch. Because the day that you touch it, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You see, in this way, he ordained for them to learn about freedom and obedience, right? God, just God said to the people of Israel in his day, didn't he? A similar sort of thing. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he says, I call upon heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. And he says, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, God said to Israel that you and your children may live. Well, but what did they do? Rather than choose life, you know the story better than I did, they chose the curses, right? They chose the curses. That's not all of them, of course, but the majority chose the curses. Rather than choose life, they chose death. And it's one of the basic truths of life. Obedience brings blessing, peace, Disobedience brings discipline and judgment. And we only see that in families, don't we? If a child does something wrong, it's disciplined. Well, I hope it is. 
and receives the penalty. And now we come to the first marriage. Well, at the close of the sixth day of creation, God had surveyed everything he had made and pronounced it very, very good. All cup I, as far as God was concerned. There was, but now God says, hang on, there's something missing in my wonderful world. There is something here, he says, is not good. Everything was very good, but now there's something not good. Man here is alone. Man is incomplete without someone to compliment him and fulfill the, the commission to go forth and multiply and dominate the earth. Woman was made by God to, to, to meet man's deficiency. And so it was not good that man, in fact, in the Hebrew, not good is the first sentence, first words. It's not good. It's at the beginning of the statement in verse 18. So it was not good about man's solitude. Adam could have fellowship with God, enjoy the beauty of the garden, play and work with all the animals, all at his disposal he was in charge of. What more could a man want, you might say? But God knew that Adam needed a helpmate or a helper suitable for him. In verse 18, NIV says, a helper suitable for him, a helper like man. And so there was no such helper among the animals. <laughs> you notice that? God made the first woman and presented her to the man as his wife, companion and helper. So she was God's special love gift to Adam. Let's look quickly at the verse 18 to 22, the dignity of the woman. The woman was by no means a lesser creature. In some cultures they are. And that used to annoy me in South America. Uh, not all South America, of course, but the country we lived in, Paraguay. The woman would be carrying everything on her head and one kid in front and one on her back half the time and carrying all the produce for the day and the man would be just strutting ahead with a machete as the big chief, only holding a machete. And his poor wife would be carrying everything. And uh, it used to bug me. And uh, when they came to our place, if I got in the kitchen to help my wife, they'd say, you don't do that, Don Roberto, in our culture. It's the wife's job in the kitchen. And if you go in the kitchen, all the men will walk out of the house. <laughs> well, we slowly and tried to educate them that that was not God's culture. We're workers together in the things of God. And so here, the dignity of the woman. She was by no means lesser. The same God who made Adam also made Eve and created her in his own image. Both Adam and Eve exercised dominion over creation. Adam was made from the dust. Eve was made from Adam's side, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And uh, the plain fact is that Adam needed Eve. Not a single animal God had created could do for Adam what Eve could do. She was a helper suitable for him. And when God prayed it, I guess I've thought about this, the animals before Adam, and what a job he had to name all those animals, you know, the lions, the tigers, the leopards, and so on. And as they came past, and he named them in pairs, I wondered whether Adam thought, well, hang on, there's something missing here. I don't have a, a mate. I don't have a, anyone that I can communicate with. There's something wrong. Well, the well-known Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, wrote this. He said, he was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to trample upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, 
under his arm to be protected by him, near his heart to be loved by him. The sanctity of marriage. Well, God's pattern for marriage wasn't uh, devised by Adam, as the traditional marriage ceremony states, but it was born in the very heart of Almighty God, out of love for mankind, to be a blessing. And perhaps the Lord looks down today on many unbiblical marriages and repeats the words of the Lord Jesus when he said in Matthew 19, from the beginning it was not so. As you see all the muddle and the fuddle and the divorces and uh, easy come, easy go of marriage today. But in the beginning it was not so. God's original plan was that one man, one woman, one flesh for one lifetime. And uh, God wanted a suitable companion for Adam, so he gave him a suitable wife. God knew exactly what Adam needed. Adam probably didn't know. And if there's young guys here today, you probably don't know what kind of wife you, you need, but God does. And so where do you find your wife? On your knees. On your knees. Hmm? Martin Luther said this, called marriage a school of character. <laughs> and it certainly is. As two people live together in holy matrimony, the experiences are either bring out the best or the worst in them. And every marriage will testify to that fact, I'm sure. <coughs> so marriage is an illustration of a loving and intimate relationship, uh, also between Christ and his church. You read that in Ephesians 5.22. And Paul called it a great mystery. That is a profound spiritual truth that was once hidden in the ages, but revealed by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of Christ is the last Adam. Therefore, the type is a type of Adam, the first Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Adam was put to sleep. Hmm. His side was opened that he might have a bride, a wife. There's something else. The Lord Jesus died on the cross. Remember that? His side was thrust through with a spear. His blood was shed in order that he might have a beautiful bride. And what's the bride of Christ? That's the church, that's you and I. Hmm? And you can read about that in John 19, 33, 37, when Jesus gave himself up <clears throat> on a cross. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, Ephesians says. He cares for it, he seeks to cleanse it and make it more beautiful for his glory. And one day he will claim his bride and present her in purity and in glory in heaven. And uh, not having spot nor wrinkle nor any blemish, he will be present you as his church in glory. Perfect. We're not perfect now. If you think you are, well, just get someone to live, live with you for a couple of weeks and they'll soon tell you that you're not. But in that day, we're going to be perfect without a blemish. And hence the importance... <clears throat> Of marriage. In Genesis 2.23, in the beginning when God brought Eve to Adam, I guess when Adam woke up from that God's operation and God had taken a bone, remember, out of Adam and saw his beautiful bride, I wonder what Adam said. Hmm? I don't know about you, but when I saw my beautiful bride come down the aisle, even though she was 15 minutes late, and we've been late ever since, uh, I wow, not quite, <laughs> wow, you know, 
And I guess Adam did the same. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, the scripture tells us five times, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, if God's got to say something to us five times, just like he said six times, and God saw and it was good, God saw and it was good, it's not for us to get bored about that. It's to appreciate the beauty of God. And when God says here uh, five times, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Five times in Scripture, and you can read it in Matthew 19, Mark 10, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, 31. Uh, surely God wants us to get the message. I know when he says something five times to me, he knows how dumb I am, so he's got to say it probably 25 times right, to get the message. You see, in marriage there's a leaving, there's a cleaving, and a becoming one. And I want to just talk a few minutes about this. God's perfect design in marriage is that a man, what, leave his father and his mother. And I'll tell you guys, if you don't leave your mummy and your daddy, you'll have problems in your marriage. Because the scripture commands us to leave our mothers and our fathers. You know? Get away from mummy's apron springs. Right? And uh, you don't keep running back to mummy when things go wrong. You don't keep running back to daddy when things just don't go right in the marriage. No, you pray and talk things through and work things through together. And where do you settle it? On your knees and with the word of God. So there's a leaving, and that's a continuous tense, I understand. You keep leaving, and then you keep cleaving to your wife. You keep cleaving. What's that? It's interesting, the Hebrew word there, I don't know how to spell it, but it's D-A-B-A-Q, Dabach. And uh, it means a strong binding. It means a gluing together, a cementing together. Is your marriage cemented together, glued together? I was just a few weeks ago um, fixing chairs for my son in Auckland and I got this flash glue from the uh, supermarket and I was gluing the chairs. Next thing I found my two fingers glued together and I couldn't get them to part. I had to get a knife and wriggle it between my fingers, sharp knife, to get them. Well, this is the type of glue that God's talking about here, the Hebrew word. A gluing, a cementing together. Marriage is God intended. Uh, is a total commitment of husband and wife to each other and to Christ as the divine author of their union and long-lasting covenant. And then there's not only a, a leaving and a cleaving, but a becoming one flesh. That's very important. The phrase one flesh implies anything that breaks the physical bond in marriage can also break the marriage itself. One such thing is death. That can break when one's partner dies. It breaks the marriage bond and frees the other to remarry if they want to. And uh, we haven't got time to look at that this morning, but that's a humongous uh, uh, study. You see, Jesus teaches that adultery can also break the marriage bond. Death can, adultery can. Under the Old Testament, anybody who committed adultery, what was? They were stoned to death. Stoned to death. But today we say, oh, you know, he's just a bad guy. She's just a bad girl. Carry on with life. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't so. Thus leaving the innocent one here free to remarry. But this law 
wasn't given to the church. It was not given to the church. And it appears that divorce in the New Testament is equivalent uh, of death in the Old Testament and that the innocent party is free to remarry. However, sins against the marriage bond can be forgiven and the couples can work through it, can exercise forgiveness, can make a new beginning in the Lord. That's the wonderful thing about forgiveness in marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, 4, we read these words. Uh, the Bible says the spouses belong to each other. So if you're married, you have no right to do your own thing. I have no right to do my own thing, to do what I want to do. And there's many that go down that line today. Listen to what the scripture says. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And you might jump up and down if you're a wife. But it also, and likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Wow, that's 1 Corinthians 7, 4. You see, in God's eyes, they become totally the possession of each other. As one flesh, whatever you do to yourself, you do to each other. And what Eve did, she did to her husband. And we look at that next week. And so the Lord Jesus here, he answers these pompous religious Pharisees. How did he answer them? You see, when the religious Pharisees attacked Jesus about marriage, and they were, they were always attacking Jesus about something, the ones that should have been the religious leaders of the nation and teaching holiness and purity in marriage, they attacked Jesus about marriage. And how did Jesus respond to these religious people? Instead of giving them a yes and no answer, how did he respond? He went right back beyond the rabbinical traditions, back beyond the Ten Commandments. He went all the way, all the way back to God's creation of man, back to Adam and Eve. <clears throat> and he said to these Pharisees, he said, haven't you read the book of the beginnings, the book of Genesis? Are you so learned, you religious people, are not aware that God himself declared at the very beginning of creation? What did he declare? Don't you know the very first thing that God said about marriage? Don't you remember? Have you not read Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24? Your argument's not with me, but it's with my Father, God, who made them at the beginning. He made them both male and female. And the literal uh, rendering there is one male and one female. Way back in the beginning. Haven't you read it? In other words, God made one man and one woman. There are no spares. Or even possibilities for multiple or alternative spouses. <clears throat> there was only one man and one woman in the beginning. And Jesus gives the reasons. And he says, therefore what God has joined together... What's God joined together? You see, the very first marriage, God joined it together. God joined it together. He brought it about. Every husband and every wife since has been joined together by God. Marriage is, first of all, God's institution, God's design, God's doing, regardless how people corrupt it or how people disregard it or how people deny it. It's God's work, God's doing, whether it is entered into wisely or foolishly, sincerely or insincerely, selfishly or unselfishly, with great commitment or little or no commitment. It's God's design. God designed it for every marriage is to be permanent until what? Death do them part. 
not debt. So many couples get so far into debt, they've got to walk away from each other. I just saw this morning on the news that Dot Com's wife, with all their billions, she's left him. Hmm? Why? Why? So God's perfect design. Let no man here separate. I like that. Let no man. I once read a book a few years ago that the richest people in, in America are lawyers who make money out of divorces. Can you believe that? How are they going to live with their conscience? Perhaps they've got none. Hmm? Let no man separate. To destroy a marriage is to destroy a creation of Almighty God because God has joined the marriage together. And Jesus' point here is that marriage is always the work of God and separation is always the work of mankind. Let no man separate what God has joined together. Let no man, whoever he is or wherever he is, be lawyer, counselor, preacher, teacher, or for whatever reason he may have, has no right, he or she, to separate what Almighty God has joined together. They're playing God. Dear people, no matter where your marriage is today, in closing, no matter where it is, at this very moment, you know what? It's pointing to the great reality possible, the greatest reality possible. When you gaze on the cross as we did this morning, we begin to see the light of a glorious day. Your marriage now and my marriage now prepares us for that glorious day. What a day that will be. Hmm? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? And you're going to be there if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life. If you haven't, you won't be there. You're going to a place where there's no marriage. But let's, we read these words in Revelation 19 and verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed, happy are those who call, are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true sayings of God. Wow, what a day that's going to be. You know, as real as our marriages are to us on this earth, they are just a shadow right? Just a shadow of the reality we will experience when Christ comes to claim his bride at the rapture and take us out to be with himself in glory. Well, there will, then we will have a wedding feast to celebrate, our union with Christ, and it'll be unlike any feast that has ever been celebrated before. The entire family of Christ will be there. There won't be one missing the whole family of God will be there. The joy at that feast will not be marred. Praise God by sin, by struggle, by poverty, by pain, by disagreement, by disappointment. There'll be none of that in God's perfect heaven. We will be forever with Christ in our new home when Christ comes to claim his bride, the church. We will celebrate with him the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're looking forward to that? 
<coughs> You're looking forward to that? Oh, amen. Oh. Yeah, I, I might be going. I could be going. I'm not sure whether I'm going to really make it to heaven, but you never know. No, I'm looking forward to it. Hallelujah! Christ is coming for his church, and he's coming soon. But the tragedy, if you don't know Christ, you won't be there. There'll be no marriage supper for you. There you'll see the perfect marriage, the perfect supper, and the glory. Let's pray. Father, we just come and um, thank you for these dear people. Lord, as they've listened to a, perhaps a misjointed message, bits and pieces, because we've just sort of touched on different areas in this important chapter, and there are many issues there that we could have dealt with, very important, but we've had to pass by because of time. So, Lord, we just pray that you'll be with these dear people here today, Lord, who love you, who desire to follow you, and many of, the, of these wonderful people have given their lives for you, given their all for you. And so we pray that those who are still married, that you'll bless them in their marriage. Those, Lord, some of them, their partners have gone on to glory. They're waiting and will be waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb and to be reunited with their loved ones. Lord, in the meantime, just bless them, encourage them, and help them to fight the good fight so that they'll be able to say with Christ in a coming day, Father, I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you gave me to do. And so today we just come and commit ourselves to you. Lord, if there's some out there today who are grieving, and we know there are, who've lost loved ones, we just lovingly commit them to you. Pray your blessing and help and encouragement on them. In our Saviour's worthy name, amen. Amen. 